Please turn to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, if we've been looking at the Ten Commandments for eight weeks now, so I, if you're regular, I probably don't need to tell you that's on page 72 in the Church Bible, but I'll on page 72 in the Church Bible. Uh, this morning we're focusing on the Seventh Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Or in Hebrew, just two words, never adultery. Whole passage, Exodus 21 through 17. Hear now the reading of God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's word. Be God. As we get started and we approach this command, you shall not commit adultery, I just want to make two prefatory comments. The first is it's easy to think that you're being singled out. All of us feel like, you know, I've done this, this, I've had this fantasy, you know, whatever it is, and I'm the one who's sort of uniquely guilty in this room. But the truth is, as we heard from Jesus broken in the area of sexuality, and we've all broken God's word in the area of sexuality. Stand in need of redemption, of Christ's grace to renew. First general comment. The second comment is that I'm not going to get into technical issues, but if you have technical questions, the elder said to Austin, you can go to Belgium for three months, but you're the designated elder on those questions. So <laughs> on that, don't, please don't text your technical questions to Austin. But how I want to approach this topic, you shall not commit adultery, is kind of from the side by focusing on three gifts, three gifts. God gives us bodies. God gives us desire, and God gives us marriage. First, God gives us bodies. 
God gives us bodies. Uh, as we've noted a number of times, the Ten Commandments are rooted in creation, in the order of creation. And in the account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates humans as physical, material, bodily beings. Now, you might be thinking, so what? Yeah, of course. Uh, but in the ancient world, our physical existence was often seen as a burden. Bodies were perceived as sort of disposable shells. What really mattered was the spiritual, the unchanging, the eternal. But what do we see in Genesis 2? The spiritual, unchanging, eternal God gets his hands dirty. He reaches down into the topsoil and shapes it into a human being and breathes the breath of life, body made out of topsoil, and it becomes a human being. Our bodies are a good gift of God. Our bodies are created. And that means our bodies are shaped by God's purposes and his intentions. Our bodies are endowed with meaning and significance. And so that we have physical bodies is not sheer chance or some accident of evolution that we impose meaning on, but rather our bodies are meaningful and intentional from the start. Our goal then is not to invent our own meanings or purposes or identities for our bodies, but rather to try to understand the Creator's purpose for our bodies. Genesis 1 helps us to understand that purpose. After God shaped and filled the earth, we read God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God made human beings to bear his image to represent him. God made humans for relationship with himself. And Genesis 1.27 draws attention to the fact that humans come in two basic varieties, male and female, he created them. And that, uh, it's not secondary to our being made in the image of God, but part of our very identity as image bearers is that we are men and women, male and female. We are created with gender and sexuality, and that's part of how we bear God's image. And that fundamental truth then shapes the Christian ideal for marriage and sexuality. That marriage and, and healthy sexual relationship is a unity across difference, a unity in diversity. Well, God gives us bodies, and our bodies mirror God. It's part of how we bear God's image. God speaks, and because God gave us lungs and vocal cords and tongues and teeth and lips, we can speak too. In Genesis 1, God divides and separates and shapes. And because God gives us hands and arms and muscles and ligaments, we too can divide and shape the world round about us. And at the end of Genesis 1, God creates creatures that bear his image, and he blesses them and he says, be fruitful and multiply. And because God gave us reproductive organs, we too are fruit, have the capacity to be fruitful and multiply and make little image bearers. Our bodies are part of how we image God. This noble calling of making more image bearers comes through a comically physical act. 
There's something fundamental about our human nature. The nobility and the goofiness comes together. Well, all this means that God made sex. It's not something inherently dirty or sinful, but rather one of God's good gifts to humanity. It's part of our bodily nature. And that means that God actually values sex more highly than we do. And God knows more about sex than we do. And how foolish and condescending we are then when we think we know better than God. God gives us bodies as a gift, and he gives us bodies for fellowship with him. Our bodies were created and will be resurrected so that we can have a relationship with God. Listen to Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's unpacking and applying the basic principle of the seventh commandment, but I want you to listen specifically for the different things Paul says about our bodies, that our bodies are for the Lord, members of Christ, temples of the Holy Spirit. Hear what Paul says. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? For as it is written, two shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul says our bodies are not for sexual immorality, and we'll come back to what that means in a moment here. But he says that there is morality that governs what you do with your bodies. There's an ethic of the body. There's a right and a wrong way to use our sexuality. But even more fundamentally, he focuses on the positive vision of what our bodies are for. Our bodies are for the Lord and the Lord for the body. We are not our own, but belong body and soul to our Lord. Paul unpacks what that means with some images. Our bodies are members of Christ's body. Each Christian's body is like an organ or a cell or a limb. We're united to Christ, and so that has implications for our bodies. Our bodies are how Christ, who has ascended to heaven, is physically present in the world. Likewise, he says our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. As we progress in Exodus, we'll see that once the tabernacle is finished, God dwells uh, in the midst of Israel by being present in the tabernacle. And now Paul takes that image and he applies it to your body and my body. He says, God, through his spirit, dwells in you. He's present in your midst. And so Paul really here is outlining a Trinitarian theology of the body. It's for the Lord. It's a member of Christ. It's filled with the Holy Spirit. God gives us bodies for fellowship with him. We all struggle with sexual immorality in one form or another. We're all broken and break God's good purposes, but that's not the end of the story. Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. That price is almost unfathomable, that Christ would give himself to buy you. Therefore, glorify God gives us body. So we join together physically in the body as God's people and we use our bodies, we, our, our voices, our hands, we stand, we sit, 
to worship God. What we do with our bodies matters. But let's turn then to the second gift. God gives us desire. God gives us desire. Oftentimes in the modern world, humans are treated as sort of basically complex, uh, organic computers. We compute, we do rational things, that kind of stuff. And yet humans are not fundamentally computers. Uh, We're more like if you took a computer and wired it to a ground wasp nest and then poked it with a stick to see what would happen. That's kind of what humans are like. We do have rationality, a capacity for complex abstract thinking, syllogistic logic, but we also have desires, passions, hopes, fears, moods, emotions, feelings, obsessions. As Blaise Pascal famously put it, the heart has its reasons which reason knows nothing of. We are directed by desire. Jonathan Grant notes, human longing, sexual desire in its very broadest sense, is what makes us tick. Without desire, no one ever would have climbed Mount Everest or run a sub-four-minute mile. Without desire, there would be no Taj Mahal, no String Quartet 13 in B-flat major. On down the list, our desire drives us to do things that, strictly speaking, perhaps uh, aren't rational. A computer would never think up to do those sorts of things. Julian Hardiman argues, longing and desire are at the center of our existence, the very center of our souls. We are incomplete. We long for more. And more than anything, we long for personal intimacy, closeness with other people. Perhaps highest of all, we long for the romantic sexual intimacy of marriage, but our longing is not confined to that. Our desire and longing is central to who we are, and it drives us. Okay, our desire may be like wiring a wasp nest up to a rational computer. And no, I haven't thought through how you'd do that, but that's just a. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it, but it doesn't mean that our desire is bad. Uh, C.S. Lewis uses a different image. He says, our desire, uh, especially erotic desire, it's both angelic and a bit like a tomcat mixed together. Um, and if you can work out that kind of image, that there's something uh, fundamentally comical, irrational, but also profoundly spiritual about our capacity for desire. But just because desire isn't strictly rational doesn't mean it's bad. Desire is one of God's good gifts. It's part of our human nature. Even romantic love points to a desire that underlies all other desires, one that will not ever, cannot ever be fully satisfied in this world because it was designed to be satisfied uh, beyond this world. It was designed to awaken a longing deep within us that can only be satisfied by Christ. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Isn't that the perfect image of human desire and longing of our very nature? We have eternity in our hearts, a longing abundance, and yet we can never grasp it at least not fully. Augustine famously opens his confessions, we desire to praise you, even though we are, it's a prayer, we desire to praise you, O God, even though we are only a small part of your creation. You have stirred in us desire to praise you, for you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it comes to rest in you. Human desire, our longing, our restlessness is the half-heard call of our creator that we were made for something more. 
we have a built-in desire, a built-in longing that is never fully satisfied in this life. No matter how great your marriage, no matter how great the worship service, you know, whether you're a Christian or not, whatever it is, our longing is never fully satisfied in this life. We are restless, looking for something more. Now, we need to be careful here. Our desire is God's gift, but that doesn't mean every desire we have is therefore God-given or endorsed. Uh, that view leads to all sorts of uh, mistakes in our moral reasoning. God gives us a capacity for desire. Uh, he gives us something in us that we call desire. That structure is part of God's good creation. But in our selfishness and sin, our desires become misdirected. Our desires become disordered. And so we desire all sorts of things that really aren't for our good. Just as our bodies matter, so do our desires matter. We already read earlier in Matthew 5 when Jesus reflects on this command, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's saying your desires matter. It's not just what we do with our bodies, but what goes on in our hearts. Lust, Jesus says, in at least some non-trivial aspects is basically equivalent to adultery. That phrase, uh, lustful intent, is trying to capture that Jesus is using a purpose statement here. He's not saying if you happen to notice someone's attractive that walks by, you've already lusted and committed adultery. But rather, he's saying, if you look at someone in order to lust, with the purpose of lusting, I suppose what we would call gawking, you're already committing adultery. As Martin Luther colorfully put it, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. That's kind of the same idea Jesus is getting at here. It's, it's not that you just happen to know someone's attractive, but when you're pondering them, reflecting on them, uh, lusting after them, that's what he's drawing home here. Um, I remember in high school working in a restaurant, and you know when you work in a non-Christian environment, sometimes people kind of use you as the moral thermometer to figure out what's right and wrong. And the chef who was much older, he, uh, somehow I don't remember how the conversation got onto Playboy, but he said, so well, it's not that I have lust, I just really appreciate the beauty of female body, and so I, I've subscribed to Playboy for years, and it's like, uh, no, no, that's it. That, that is lust that you're describing there. That's, that's what we're talking about here. It's a problem. Uh, but we come up with all these ways to sort of justify what we do. To drive home how serious it is, Jesus recommends, if your right eye is causing you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Of course, it's hyperbole. Don't actually tear out your right eye. But his point is, our desires are so important Go to whatever length it takes to avoid lust. In 1 Corinthians 6 that we read earlier, Paul similarly warns us, flee from sexual immorality. That word sexual immorality, porneia, what we get our word pornography from, is any form of illicit sexual stimulation. As one author puts it, any form of sexual stimulation outside of a lifelong relationship between two people of the opposite sex who have publicly committed to one another in marriage. Now, our attitude is oftentimes a bit like kids who play the game at the beach where you run out as far as you can before the wave comes in and try not to get wet. And that's kind of our attitude towards sexual immorality at times. It's how close can I get without splashing on me? But Paul doesn't say, here's the line, you can get this close. He says, flee from it. It's, it's like a grizzly bear. You don't see how close you can get to a grizzly bear out in the wild. You flee from it. That's what Paul's saying here. This can destroy 
lives. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in one of his letters, writes that our sexual fantasies send a man into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifice or adjustment, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. It's not only the faculty of love, which is thus sterilized, forced back on itself, but also the faculty of imagination. He's saying if we live with a mental harem, uh, you know, our private fantasies that we that ultimately we're being turned back on ourselves rather than out of ourselves. And so traditionally, Christians have upheld the virtue of chastity. It used to be something that people named their daughters, but not anymore, at least as far as I've seen. Uh, we tend to hear chastity and we think celibacy, but that's not what historically chastity means. Aquinas says chastity is about chastising our desires. He says our desire is like a child. Children need punished and directed and disciplined. So our desire, we have desires, but they need chastised. That's what chastity is fundamentally about. It's the opposite of lust. Lust is disordered desires, uh, uh, wrongly ordered, wrong object. Chastity is about rightly ordering and training our desires. And so chastity then is a call to both singles and married people. We all need to chastise our desires. But it's not just about managing our desires. Our desire and longing is fundamentally meant to point us towards God. Getting involved with God then brings risks. Risks that our desires are intensified in some ways and painfully purified in others so that our desires ultimately will conform to God's will. Okay, God gives us bodies, he gives us desires, and then third, God gives us marriage. God gives us marriage. Marriage is a gift to humanity as a whole, even though not every single human being will marry. Uh, on Facebook, apparently, there's 13 different options for your relationship status that you can pick. Uh, but in terms of sexual ethics, the Christian view is that there are two fundamental relationship statuses. You're either single or you're married. Uh, in high school and college, I remember people saying things like, they're basically married, they've been dating since the eighth grade. Okay, I'm sorry, no. You're either married or single. And dating is something that single people do to figure out if they should get married. Okay, it's not some third category with a third set of ethics. Uh, making, not keeping this clear, people end up over-investing in dating relationships, both emotionally, assuming, or at least hoping that it will lead to marriage. But a dating relationship, by definition, isn't permanent. Okay, it can end at any moment. And so Christians should date in a way that when the relationship ends, either in marriage or breakup, it's a success because both the man and the woman have respected each other, encouraged each to grow in Christ and understand themselves better. Okay, marriage is a gift of God, but that doesn't mean that being single is second-class citizenship or just being in limbo. That's certainly not the way Paul talks about it. He says being single is a gift. And sometimes we think, 
well, if I have desires, romantic desires, then I must not have the gift of singleness. But that's not what Paul is saying. We all have desires. Rather, Paul's point is that if you are single, that is God's gift at this point in your life. That's not necessarily permanent. Okay? Uh, uh, for some people, singleness is lifelong, but for others, we're single before or after marriage. Uh, but Paul says, whatever your situation, you should look at singleness as a gift, an opportunity to grow in Christ. But marriage is also a gift. Genesis 2.24 describes the institution of marriage as the culmination of creation. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage, then, is public, permanent, physical union. It's public. There's a visible separation. He'll leave his father and mother. It's permanent. The man shall hold fast to his wife, and it's physical. They shall become one flesh. Adultery, then, the seventh command, uh, what it's forbidding is violation, uh, any violation of this public, permanent, physical union, either by turning away from your spouse to someone else or by interjecting yourself into someone else's marriage. Sexual immorality is illicit sexual stimulation, and when it violates the marriage relationship, it is therefore adultery. And so we must guard ourselves. Suggestive flirting with a coworker, imagining life with someone else instead of your spouse, simulated affairs through pornography. It's all violations of that basic, public, permanent, physical union. The seventh commandment then, bringing all this together, tells us to express our desires with our bodies in the context of marriage. Okay, sex is unavoidably a commitment-making activity. It involves intimacy, self-exposure, emotional, psychological, and physical components all come together, and so we need the safety provided by the context of a committed relationship. And so if you could use this term, the Christian view is super consensual, that sex should take place not just with consent, but in the context of a covenanted permanent relationship. Married love brings together three things, desire, intimacy, commitment. Uh, Jonathan Grant writes, desire motivates love. It's the physiological uh, attraction that compels us towards another. But by itself, it is a fickle force that can go astray or die down after the initial heat dissipates. Intimacy deepens love as physical and emotional closeness come with increasing trust, honesty, and warmth. And then commitment protects love by providing a safe context in which it can thrive. It provides a secure place where vulnerability, trust, and exclusivity can blossom. Within marriage, there's not mere permission for sex, but it is a positive duty. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not... Uh, deprive one another. The application this morning then is pretty simple and twofold. First, don't have sex with someone you're not married to. Flee all forms of illicit sexual stimulation. But second, do have sex with the person that you are married to. There's a positive way to fulfill the seventh commandment. Sex is inherently a commitment-making activity. And so in God's plan for marriage, 
in ordinary circumstances, it's meant to be a regular, recurring way of renewing the marriage commitment. And so sex is a bit like the check engine light in your car. If something's wrong somewhere else in your marriage, it's going to show up in the bedroom, okay? And so if that's not a regular part of your marriage, there's block out some time, talk it through, figure out what's going on. It's a positive command to renew our marriage on a regular basis through physical intimacy. Well, both marriage and singleness are a gift, not only to those who are married, but to the larger church and the world as well. That's because marriage is intended as a picture of God's love for us. It's intended as a picture of God's love for us, of the intimate communion that God desires to have with us. So adultery is one of the key images used by the prophets to describe Israel's physical, uh, 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 spiritual infidelity, because marriage itself, passion, intimacy, commitment, coming together in one relationship, is a picture of the kind of relationship God wants to have with his people. Sex within the context of a faithful, lifelong, and exclusive commitment is a small picture of the intimate relationship for which we have all been created. A relationship of commitment, faithfulness, and intimacy with God himself. And so marriage is meant to be a picture of the gospel. Although we have broken God's commands, although we have broken this command, although we have strayed uh, both in our thought life and also strayed from God who wants to have this relationship with us, marriage is meant to be a picture of the intensity and fidelity of God's love for his bride, for the church. And so in Christ, God came to rescue those who have broken his commands, to redeem and renew his bride, to bind his people to himself in permanent, intense, intimate, passionate, committed relationship. It's meant to be a picture of the good news. And so our bodies facilitate communion with God, our relationship with God, our desires drive us towards that kind of a relationship, and marriage is meant to give us a picture of what that ultimately looks like. Let us pray together. Gracious Lord, uh, this is an area in which many, if not all of us, struggle. It's not helped by the fact that we are constantly bombarded by uh, sexualized advertising and entertainment. Uh, it's an area where there can be much confusion, shame, hurt, pain. And yet it's also an area where there is much grace. That through Christ Jesus, you are redeeming us and renewing us. You are rescuing us. That no matter how broken we have made our own lives, you nevertheless love us and are at work restoring us. Lord, may our desire point us towards our ultimate hope. That one day we will live in a way that we see you face to face that we know you uh, more intimately through this life, and then that is consummated in the life to come, in the resurrected life. Lord, we ask for those who are married, that you would bolster their marriages, that they would find new health and new life, a desire to live in a way that models the gospel. For those who are single in our midst, uh, widows and widowers, younger single people, uh, throughout, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to see singleness as a gift from you, 
an opportunity to grow and know you better. Thank you for the good gifts that you have given us, bodies, desires, marriage, singleness, that you've given us the family of the church, the opportunity to worship you. Amen.